Hello there and thank you for downloading the Agendas podcast from the 11th of December. And on the programme today, we looked at what can be done about the carbon footprint of agriculture. That's as the UN's Food and Agriculture Organisation calls for an entire rebalancing of farming. We got analysis of what that means from Dr Danush Dinesh. He's the founder of the think tank Climate. And we also spoke to a billionaire philanthropist looking to change dairy and egg farming with a process called precision fermentation. Plus, as Saudi Arabia relaunches a new city designed entirely around play, we got the latest on Qadir and whether it counts as a giga project. That was with construction expert Chris Seymour. Meanwhile, in partnership with the World Health Organization, Abu Dhabi is hosting a conference on global surveillance and response to influenza and respiratory viruses, just like COVID-19. We found out more with Her Excellency Dr. Farida Al-Hosseini, who you'll remember was the voice of the UAE's COVID-19 response. And we also did a bit of a, a deep dive into some of the startups who are exhibiting in the green zone at COP28. First up, we spoke to the founder of Happy Dolphin. David Hughes came in to describe how his plastic cups aren't made out of plastic and are fully sustainable. And we also found out the winners of the Expo Live sustainability competition. And before you think we forgot about sport, well, we didn't. Chris McCarty joined us with an update of everything that happened over the weekend, both off the pitch, on the pitch and on the water. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right, let's get straight into it. There's an awful lot to discuss on the programme today. Not least over the weekend, more than 100 world leaders at COP28 agreed to make their farm and food systems a key part of their plans to fight climate change. And it is not surprising because uh, farming coming under the spotlight, considering the sector accounts for about a third of planet warming emissions. And in that third livestock make up over half of that third, meaning meat and dairy in particular coming under fire. The UN published a, uh, a an updated report. That was the Food and Agriculture Organization. They added to the conversation and that report included ways to cut those livestock emissions. But intriguingly, didn't use any suggestion of changing people's diets, um, which would you argue? She would argue is kind of key. Um, Anyway, uh, not for me to analyse. I don't know enough about it. But fortunately, we do have someone in the studio who does know a huge amount about it. Uh, Dr. Danush Dinesh is the founder of Climate. They are a think tank looking to bridge science and policy for climate and food. Now, Dr. Dinesh, you're normally based in the United Kingdom. It's fantastic to have you here joining us in our Dubai studio because, of course, you are here for COP28. Can I get your impression first, Dr. Dinesh, on this document, this report that came out? I have to say I was expecting a little bit more on Agriculture Day at COP28. Uh, Am I just being demanding? No, I don't think you're just being demanding, Georgia. I think I was also expecting a lot more. Um, I mean, on the positives, it's great that the UN is addressing this issue. They're saying, you know, we need a roadmap to address emissions from food and agriculture, including livestock. 
uh, on the not so positive or negative side, they're not being strong enough in their wording. Um, you know, they, they are, if you read the document, it leads, uh, leaves a lot for imagination. What does this actually mean? You know, and it's very classic UN diplomatic wording that they've used, which is very hard to decipher. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's going to be a slow process. So what they're also saying is it will be a three-part effort. So they will take this forward in COP29 and COP30. So we might have to wait for something really radical. But I don't think that's going to come from the UN, unfortunately. I mean, for a sector that creates a third of emissions, you would expect really a sort of greater sense of urgency, one one might argue. I mean, I must admit, I come from a farming background. I, I grew up on a, a dairy farm. We still have a dairy farm back in the United Kingdom. Um, and yet I still feel quite strongly that something needs to be done. How does the industry need to improve its record? There must be so many facets to it, but can you run through just a few of the things that probably need to change in order for less carbon emissions to be emitted? Yeah, so there are actually three things, three three pathways that uh, the industry can take to actually shift into a more less emitting, climate-friendly uh, way of working. So the first thing is, I mean, meat is always going to be on the table. It's not going to disappear. So we need to accept that. So for those people who want meat, how do we produce it more sustainably? So there are lots of technologies out there, like you can give uh, feed additives like seaweeds to cows and then they stop burping and then you don't have emissions. So there are all these kind of technologies and we need to apply that to make the production more efficient. Then we see more and more a lot of people want to shift out of meat, but they like the taste of meat. So for them, I think we need to make available alternative sources, so plant-based meat and all, there are lots of technologies there. It's a new industry, so we need to really support that to make, make it available because people will choose what tastes better. And finally, we need to think about who is over-consuming, right? Uh, I'm not against meat, but I'm against over-consumption because it also causes health problems. So where we see over-consumption resulting in obesity, can we as consumers make changes to reduce the consumption? So those are the three things I think we should, we should do. There are also two big sort of sectors of the community at play here. There are actually maybe three even. So you've got your farmers, then you've got your meat lobbyists, of which there are apparently far more at COP28 this year than, than in the past. And then you've got your consumers. And all of those three groups need to change their behaviour, don't they? Can I focus on consumers? Because that's you and me and most people listening. Do you think that we are ready to make a change to, to eating less meat? No, we are not, uh, because it I tastes love, good. I love how straightforward you are with that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we can be if we got the right alternatives and the right, I mean, if we had uh, meat and something which tastes exactly like meat, which is cheaper and healthier, we will choose that. I think we don't have the options available. If we have the options, we will be, I think. Does it come down to cost on one level? I mean, obviously, there's taste as well, but I've tasted meat alternatives. They taste great. I can't tell the difference. You know, they, the texture's the same, the taste is the same. But extraordinarily, they're about double the price of... Uh, so, for example, you can get a shish kebab. I tried one of them. I can't remember the brand now. And it was, yeah, it was double the price of the, of the meat ones. And, you know, naturally, you know, you, you think where your pocket is and you go with a cheaper option. Do you, and then there's another element which brings in the meat lobbyists again, that livestock farming, I know because I've benefited, benefited from it, <laughs> livestock farming is subsidised in countries like the UK and the US and across Europe. 
do we need to see an end to those livestock subsidies? Because that is what's making meat artificially cheap. Mm-hmm. So uh, second answer first, um, the livestock industry is huge. It's about $900 billion a year. Gosh. So it's huge. It's almost a trillion, right? So like, it's it's not going to disappear. It shouldn't disappear. There's also a lot of culture associated uh, with livestock. And um, these subsidies, I don't think they're going to go away. Because if they go away, farmers will be striking. They, there's going to be serious political issues. What I think should happen is let's continue giving subsidies, but change what they're being given for. Can we give those subsidies to say uh, to farmers, okay, you use these technologies, the feed additives example, for example, and that reduces your emissions. So I think we need to bring farmers into the conversation and help them to transition. So that, that's my uh, idea. And the second part uh, of the question was about the cost of alternative sources. And that's a big challenge because it, it makes it more elitist also, right? It's only the rich people who can afford the alternative sources. Uh, we're seeing in some countries like the Netherlands that the cost is coming down. Uh, but the cost globally will only come down if we really invest and scale up that industry. Currently, it's so small that the production costs are quite high. Now, so far, I've been pinpointing on the sort of meat industry, the meat and livestock industry. How about, uh, you know, plant agriculture? Do changes need to be made there as well? Yeah, huge amounts of changes. I mean, the, there are the practices that we use. Um, so how, how do you disturb the soil when you're planting and things like that? There are... Uh, there are changes to be made. But actually, as you described, it's about 14% of anthropogenic emissions which come from livestock. So that's an easy thing to do. Uh, The next part would come to plant agriculture. And um, there are lots of interesting technologies being discussed at the COP on how that can be more efficient as well. I've spoke to somebody who does organic farming here in the UAE, uh, Greenheart Organic. Mm -hmm. Really interesting lady. And I remember one of the comments that she made halfway through our conversation was was involving soil being mm. a really good carbon sink. And and I wonder how that sort of plays into it and how farming plays into spoiling soil, so to speak. It, it, is it true that soil is a way of capturing carbon? Yes, it can c- capture carbon. The only risk is that it cannot capture it permanently because if we have a flooding event or something like that, the carbon can be washed away as well. So it's a, it's the huge potential that soil carbon has but people are still trying to figure out how can we make that storage permanent how can we monitor how much is stored so you can actually pay for it so those are some of the big uh, um, challenges to get that going that's being discussed since cop 21 in paris i was there so it's it's not easy these things you know um but i also would add like you mentioned organic farming fertilizers are a huge source of emissions it's about four percent or two percent of global emissions so, you know, just shifting away from inorganic fertilizers can already result in huge savings. I could talk about this for ages, but I've got about 30 seconds left with you. And I know this is a quite a light question, but if people who are listening to this want to help on a personal basis, what should they change in their eating habits? It sounds like probably you ought to eat organic potentially, but what other changes could people make? I would say don't eat meat for one day a week. Just one day? Yeah. Gosh, that, I mean, that isn't, that's, I'd have gone like, don't eat meat for three days a week. But I, I, if you I, can. Are you just gently breaking people yeah, into it? Is that the vibe? Yeah, it's about changing the culture that this is possible. We can manage without meat and over time, maybe transition more out of meat. 
Dr. Danush Dinesh, uh, founder of Climate Eat, a think tank looking to bridge science and policy for climate and food. It's been a great pleasure having you in our studio. Thank you very much indeed. I hope the rest of COP28 goes well for you and that we get, um, everyone's got their fingers crossed for this agreement tomorrow. So, uh, but thank you for coming in. It's been a great pleasure. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda, talking about agriculture on the programme today. And that is because farming is coming under the spotlight at COP28. And that is unsurprising since the sector accounts for about a third of planet warming emissions. It's sort of hard to believe. You think of farming as natural, uh, but it's not. Livestock make up over half of those emissions. And that means that meat and dairy are key offenders in the eyes of climate activists. But the reality is that consumers still want to eat eggs, they still want to drink milk, or they want to eat products containing both of those products. And as we've just heard from Dr. Dinesh, are unwilling to change their habits. So what can be done? Well, one billionaire philanthropist looking to change the face of farming is Jim Mellon. He's the chairman and co-founder of Agronomics, which is a biotech venture capital company. And I caught up with him in the green zone a few days ago, and he he said that they are actually making a lot of progress. The biggest emitter of all are dairy cows. Dairy cows emit methane, which is about 100 times more poisonous to the atmosphere than regular carbon dioxide. And although there are efforts being made to reduce the methane emission from cows, there are so many of them, there's about 250 million around the world that produce milk, not for slaughter, but for milk, that it's a very, very large problem. So what we're doing is building factories, and our first one will be online next year in the United States and we hope to have one here in this region as well in the near future to produce exact replicas of milk proteins to which water is added which will be exactly the same as milk but without the cows involved and it's happening now so these products are on sale in the United States every single ounce that's made is sold Starbucks has it in the west coast it's called bio-identical milk and we're doing the same for eggs which is another big polluting problem and I would say within 10 or 20 years, these, as they call them, precision fermentation products will have a big market share and they will lead to a substantial reduction in the emissions from cows and from chickens that we currently have. And chickens, by the way, that produce eggs are really polluting because all the sludge goes into rivers. And you may have read about that in the UK and uh, here in Dubai, etc. And it's a very polluting and toxic sludge, basically. So get rid of that and get rid of the dairy cows we make a huge contribution to the reduction in global warming and the process that you describe there in your factories that is non-negotiably better than keeping chickens and cows themselves because sometimes you hear that the solution also has a carbon footprint yeah it's a great question i mean basically in precision fermentation the land footprint is much much smaller it's about one percent of the land use for dairy cows and for chickens The emissions are considerably less. There is some use of heat to stir the product, but it's a fraction of the total emissions created by cows and by chickens. So overall, we think about 7 to 10% of the emissions of animal husbandry relative to what we're doing. So it's really fantastic. The problem is it costs a lot of money to build these factories, and it also requires some consumer change, but we're perfectly capable of changing 
and it requires time, basically, because these factories take time to build. So ours has been under construction now for more than a year. It will only be ready by the end of next year. But to put it in perspective, this factory costs nearly 200 million US dollars. And then the factories that we're building subsequently will be 300 million dollars. So it's a very big project. I'm going to use a word you might not like. There's a word frankenfoods, which was very popular in the United Kingdom probably about a decade ago now. It mostly referred to GM foods, which everyone became obsessed with for a few years. It's all gone a bit quiet now. Do you think that there might be a consumer reluctance to try these processed foods? Well, they're not processed and they're not GM, so they don't use any GM. But I'll just very briefly explain that there are two sides to cellular agriculture. One is using stem cells to grow meat and fish. And that's where some people can accuse this of being frankenfoods. But in terms of the dairy products and the eggs, they're produced in a way that's equivalent to brewing. They're completely natural. So you're using yeast to produce these valuable proteins. So there is absolutely no linkage to anything that's sort of synthetic or anything with the stuff that we're doing in this region or are likely to do in this region. But already, you know, the region is buying into the stuff that we're doing. Uh, we recently signed a deal with Neom in Saudi Arabia for Blue Nalu, which is producing fish in a lab. And they they invested $25 million in the company. I was there three weeks ago when we signed the deal. And we expect to be announcing more deals in the very near future. So this region, which is lacking in food supply, is food insecure, has very little fertile land, uh, and in fact, it's totally unsuited to, to growing cows and growing chickens and things like that. It's ideal confluence of money and science and need. And uh, we expect very large investment in this area from this region in the near future. It sounds very exciting. It sounds very positive. Are you sort of enthused on a daily basis by your projects? Well, I am. I mean, in our household, we don't eat meat. We're very, very pro-animals. We have seven dogs, as an example. And in fact, our first cell-cultured dog food will be on sale in the United Kingdom by the end of this year, which is incredible. This year, so in basically a month's time. And we want to reduce the suffering and cruelty and emissions and all the bad stuff that goes with intensive farming of animals. Intensive farming didn't happen before the Second World War, and now it is unfortunately the way of the world. So dairy cows live on average between three and four years, whereas out in the field they would live for 25 years because their backs are broken by the size of the udders that are constantly pregnant in order to produce milk. Chickens are three times the size they were in 1950 because they're genetically grown to grow fast and to grow big and they live absolutely miserable lives for an average of 26 days before they're slaughtered. So it's a personal mission for me, but consumers don't really care about that. What they care about is price, texture, health equivalence, etc., etc. And this has all of that. So it's a no-brainer. And as I said, everything that's made in the United States at the moment is sold immediately. So there's no doubt there's would be a very big market. Jim Mellon there, chairman and co-founder of Agronomics. They're a biotech venture capital company, uh, bringing us up to date with his very interesting indeed factories. Uh, I'd be interested to know whether you would be happy to eat uh, milk or drink milk, I suppose, or eat eggs that have been made through that fermentation process. Uh, Would you feel comfortable doing that, especially if it was better for the environment? You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Now we're going to focus on Saudi Arabia for a few minutes because the city, or the country I should say, is building a city entirely focused on entertainment. The world's first city built for play is coming to Saudi Arabia. 
Don't just live life. Play life. Kadia. Yes, so Kadir City was actually announced a few years ago, but the Saudi Arabia's crown prince has now revealed the urban plan and global branding for the mega project, which is actually already under construction on the outskirts of Riyadh. And I have to say, when you look into the details of what is planned there, it is quite extraordinary. Uh, $2.7 billion has also already been invested in construction projects, but it looks like more is to come. Chris Seymour, Head of Strategy and Investment in this region and others for Mott McDonald, joins me on the line now to give us a little bit of a lowdown of what's going on. Chris is also Chair of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, Very knowledgeable on this subject. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, What do you think of this Kadir City project. Have we actually learnt anything new over the last few days? I think the brand was important for uh, for Kadir. Whilst we always knew it was um, an entertainment, uh, sports uh, focused location, it needed that brand really to bring it to life, and that's uh, and that's happened. But as you say, uh, this project was actually launched back in uh, 2017. Construction started in 2019, and indeed, uh, some areas uh, are nearly 60% complete. There's a golf course there, and that's already uh, 100%. Uh, formed now. Kadir uh, forms one of those uh, giga projects under uh, under PIF. There's five of them, uh, strictly speaking, um, it, uh, from the uh, the PIF website. You're starting with uh, Neom is quite well known. You've got Red Sea Global, Kadir, uh, Roshan, which is around uh, residential transformation. Then Diria Gate, of course, which is around culture and heritage. Locationally, it's out to the west side. Uh, of Riyadh. So it's a little bit of a drive, maybe half an hour uh, to get from Riyadh uh, to Kadir, but it's a large piece of land. This is these are these projects are extremely large, around about six and a half billion dollars in total is expected to be spent on uh, on Kadir, about 360 square kilometers. Now, just to put that into context, that would be about two and a half times the size of uh, Dubai South, for example. So these are a really large uh, schemes. And we look at Dubai, it's more, much more mature city, and it's really focusing around those individual major asset developments. In KSA, uh, we've tended to got, tend to have uh, much larger city-sized developments. And this is, uh, this is just one of the very interesting uh, projects. Um, it's supposed to be completed around about 2030. That's the completion date, along with the other uh, uh, projects that are part of that 2030 plan, although uh, some parts of it are are slated to be open uh, next year, indeed, in in 2024. So when I hosted a big gaming and esports event in Riyadh about three months ago, there was a lot of talk then about how Kadir was going to be the centre of the gaming and esports sort of world. They were creating a special district. Uh, I've also spoken to friends who work in polo. Apparently, there's going to be amazing polo ground there for people who are interested in equestrian activities. But just looking down the list, there's going to be a motorsports racetrack, uh, the golf course, as you mentioned, but it said golf courses, a massive water park and water park and the Six Flags Kadir theme park. Also a sports stadium that includes the world's largest Olympic museum. My goodness me, they really are going for it on the entertainment front, aren't they? Yeah, this will be um, globally, I would say, 
the most extensive and, and highest quality collection of sports and entertainment venues there are in one place in one place don't forget it's all being collected together in one place um as you as you mentioned the the motorsports track that will be a grade one fia uh qualified track so that could uh, host a uh, formula one event as an example so these are really uh this is really globally leading so i think the uh, the ambition uh, is definitely there the uh, logistics at the moment, some may say, well, it's a it's a bit of a drive, but there's going to be a, a planned uh, a express, a rail link from the airport that which will lead uh, straight down to Kadir called a Q Express. It certainly was in the past. So that will literally you could, you could land, get on the train and uh, and get straight to uh, Kadir. So uh, and then you can also uh, connect into Riyadh. So this is um, it, it's been uh, really well planned. It hasn't been something that's just suddenly happened. As I say, I think the investment company, which is 100 percent owned by uh, PIF, uh, was announced in 2017, actually, just after the or a short time after the 2030 plan was announced. So it's been some time in the making. Construction has been going on for some time now. So we are now starting to see uh, it materialise. It's really interesting to read some of the press that's out there about these mega developments in Saudi Arabia, because there are some suggestions that uh, quite a lot of the projects are falling behind, that they're not keeping up with uh, the, the sort of deadlines that were originally set. You're actually in Riyadh right now, which is a wonderful coincidence for us. What is the sort of mood music there? It, you know, is it full speed ahead? It, uh, you know, is this just sort of circumspect press you know and are, are people just just casting aspersions or, or is there something solid going on uh, it's uh, absolutely full speed ahead here yeah. it's um it, incredibly vibrant you feel the you maybe you can feel the energy in Riyadh a bit uh, kind of similarly to the way you felt it in Dubai maybe 15 years ago it's uh, it really is pushing uh, pushing quite hard i think there is some some new, some sometimes some some press around uh, uh completion dates moving i don't think we that that's too much of a surprise for um, for me. Quite often there is an adjustment in completion dates. Sometimes there's changes in scope as well, which don't mean that the whole project doesn't necessarily exactly line up with uh, what was originally planned. But in terms of if you look at it from an overall perspective, then progress is being made pretty much in line with the plan that was uh, conceived uh, nearly ten years ago now. And so uh, you know, in, in terms of a, a nation building project or set of projects it's doing pretty well and there's certainly uh, no lack of uh, momentum here it is ex- an extreme Riyadh is an extremely busy place that is very interesting indeed and no doubt Mark McDonald very keen to get involved in all of those projects and I'm sure you are getting involved I'm going to bring you I'm going to bring you back uh, to Dubai for a few minutes because you know not to be outdone uh, Dubai has also recently announced a brand new massive skyscraper with a twist it's going to have a clock on it and of course as somebody from the United Kingdom I'm a bit like don't you start on Big Ben don't you start trying to grab the... And instantly, Big Ben, is, if, you, if you've never seen it, it's tiny. It doesn't count as a skyscraper. It's a very small tower. Um, but yeah, what's this, what's this new skyscraper and how are they making it stand out from the rest? Yeah, so this is in uh, in uh, in Marina, Dubai Marina. So Dubai Marina uh, hailed as the the world's uh, tallest block because it has a collect uh, a closer collection of uh, world leading towers than anywhere else uh, in the world. Um, this tower was developed by um, a joint venture between London Gate and the watch Swiss watch manufacturer Frank Muller. Uh, quite an exciting development, four hundred and fifty meters 
a high. Uh, when complete, that would place it in second place uh, to the highest, the tallest residential tower in the world, which currently is the uh, Central Park Tower uh, in New York. Uh, but the marina is certainly no stranger to uh, tall towers. Marina 101 is 425 metres and Princess Tower, a quite well-known tower in the marina, uh, is 413 uh, metres. So this is certainly um, a an ambitious piece of real estate. It is. Uh, it seems to have a clock at the top, which would uh, make it a, a, the marina clock tower. I'm sure that's what everybody will start uh, referring it uh, to it as. Uh, and we're expecting some really quite high-end uh, apartments uh, in there. At that height, it does start getting quite expensive to build. And if it's expensive to build, it usually needs to be expensive to sell as well. But going with that, we're expecting quite a bit of quality. And from the press release, it looks like uh, that's what they're uh, aiming for. So uh, I think that the marina is going to be on the receiving end of another world-class tower uh, very shortly. I have one more question to ask you. And it's one of those things that you hear around a water cooler or at a dinner party. Someone says, yeah, all these construction announcements, all these massive developments that are going on. But the truth of it is that there isn't enough cement or cranes or equipment or builders, that there isn't, there just isn't enough you know, capacity in the market for all of these projects to be done at the same time. Is there any truth in those sort of, you know, gossipy statements that you hear an evening? I think as far as uh, Dubai is concerned, there is the resources there. There's, there's no doubt about that. The UAE has has pushed through uh, similar upswings in uh, in development. Uh, back in 2014, the uh, construction awards have only just reached that level now. So if you like 2014 and 2024, 10 years apart, but the uh, construction uh, throughput, if you like, or output rather, is on target to be similar uh, there's definitely enough cement and uh, at this time there is definitely enough uh, uh, tower cranes i think the resource strain uh, is starting to potentially show in in ksa those there we are seeing uh, the necessity for companies to to ramp up in terms of capacity uh, but in dubai uh, and abu dhabi that capacity is there Really interesting. Well, I will proudly go out to the dinner party circuit and the Christmas, the festive parties and say, no, 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 I have it from the top. There is plenty of cranes and capacity available here in Dubai. Uh, Chris, always lovely to have you join us on the radio. Thank you very much indeed. That's Chris Seymour, the head of strategy and investment in this region and others for Mott McDonald, also chair of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors in the Middle East and Africa. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the programme. Right, global surveillance of flu and other respiratory viruses is actually coming under the spotlight today in Abu Dhabi. You wouldn't have thought it, um, oddly enough, because it sort of feels like the pandemic is miles in the back, in the, you know, miles behind us in the back view mirror. Is that how you say it? Anyway, because but the World Health Organization are hosting a special conference to make monitoring of flu and respiratory viruses more comprehensive. And it, of course, it comes off the back of the first global pandemic in decades. And the world's health experts are looking to strengthen the globe's response systems for early detection. They'll also be discussing best practices in public health measures for any future pandemic or epidemic. I wanted to find out a bit more about this. It's really interesting that it's being hosted here in Abu Dhabi. And earlier, I spoke to one of the hosts, Her Excellency Dr. Farida Al-Hosseini. Now, she's Executive Director of Communicable Diseases at Abu Dhabi Public Health Centre. And if you were here 
during the pandemic. You'll remember her because she was the voice of the UAE's COVID-19 response. You know, anytime there was a big press conference or any sort of message needed to be relayed to the public, then Her Excellency Dr. Farida was the person to do it. Now, she told me that this conference that's happening over the next couple of days is all about sharing best practice Uh, It's all about sharing best practices. It's not actually a response to any particular rise in cases now. More than 100 experts from across the world are attending here in Abu Dhabi. This is definitely not related to any rise. It's the opposite. Uh, Fortunately, here in Abu Dhabi, we are not seeing any unexpected rise. We believe that usually the winter seasons, there is normal increase that is expected from some uh, respiratory viruses like influenza, RSV, uh, COVID, and many other like adenoviruses as well. But we don't see any abnormal increase here in Abu Dhabi. However, this meeting is just is important for us because it is helping us to engage with international stakeholders and discuss what are the areas of advancements that is needed in this field. How do you assess Abu Dhabi's readiness for the detection, the monitoring, and and of course, the response to respiratory illnesses that that sort of turn into pandemics? Well, uh, the readiness for detection, monitoring, and response really reflects the dedication for building a robust and advanced healthcare system in Abu Dhabi and in UAE. I believe that our country really invested in building a strong and resilient system. And I would just summarize it in three areas. One, building for human resources technically capable of detection and response. In addition to that, there has been many investments that even pre-COVID in the technology that uh, used for surveillance, for monitoring, and also many technologies for clinical care and response. The third element is related to the systems. Uh, The UAE has really um, integrated multi-stakeholders that is well-established, and this was uh, very well proven during COVID. And the fourth element is strengthening research, which is a lot of advancements are happening to strengthen clinical trials uh, and also scientific and epidemiological research here in UAE and in Abu Dhabi especially. I can imagine that a lot of lessons were learned from the last pandemic, in particular when it comes to the importance of local and international collaboration. Yes, we believe in the importance of having this close relationship with the international community and many valuable lessons were learned. Uh, during COVID. It's very important to have scientific exchange, share the experience and have healthcare systems responsive to emergency care challenges that need to be enhanced. Collaboration with international entities has contributed to the provision of financial and technical support as well across the world. So we believe, especially in the area of emergency preparedness and infectious diseases, there are no borders for such diseases. So that's why it's very important that we collaborate and work close together. Of course, it's quite possible that the next pandemic, if it happens, will look different to the pandemic we just had. Do you feel like the healthcare system that we have in Abu Dhabi is flexible in order to combat any threat of any sort? I believe that Abu Dhabi's proactive plan in addressing COVID pandemic was 
very distinguished and comprehensive compared to other experiences across the world. One of the strength areas is the integrated health system measures and also the advanced technology. And some of the key success elements here in our response was First, the effective monitoring by adaption of um, advanced systems for case monitoring and rapid uh, data analysis and contributing to the informed decision making. In addition to that, the SWIFT directives of the government that was kind of quick and very adaptive to different scenarios during the different stages of the pandemic. Those decisions were based on continuous assessment of the health situation. In addition to that, there is the advanced technology used to leverage the response, such as smart tracking of patients, artificial intelligence to enhance monitoring and advanced analytics. And also uh, one of the distinct factors is the close collaboration, uh, not only health sectors, but also intergovernmental and also with the private sector. That is very important for the response to deal with the uh, pandemic. And we believe that the response here and our experience in Abu Dhabi showed how much there is a strong link between the government and also the people implementing effective awareness campaigns to promote for social compliance and preventive measure. And we could see the results of that with high success rates of, for example, vaccination, compliance with the use of masks as well. Speaking to the role of the public there, obviously we are heading towards or or in the midst of the the flu season now. Is there a role that the public can play now in order to prevent themselves catching flu or catching a respiratory illness? It's always the individual that plays a major role in the overall collective response. So I believe that during the current season, it's very important to highlight how important it is for sick people to stay at home and try to minimize the exposure and transmission of the respiratory infections to others. We also launched a campaign for influenza influenza vaccine, and I believe it's it's never too late. So I, I'll advise everyone that it's very important to take influenza vaccine to prevent the complication from influenza. And especially for schools, sir, it's very important for kids who are sick to stay at home as well to avoid the transmission for other kids. Her Excellency Dr. Farida Al-Hosani there, Executive Director of Communicable Diseases at Abu Dhabi Public Health Centre, reminding me and everyone else that I need to go and get my flu jab. I keep on forgetting, uh, but I will make an appointment and, and get that and take the kids as well. Yeah, turning our attention now to another startup, because, of course, on the sidelines of these big strategic COP28 negotiations, there are hundreds of startups looking to make money, looking to reduce carbon emissions out of encouraging consumers to go green. And here on the agenda, we've been sort of picking and choosing some of the most interesting to cover on our show. And this one really caught our eye over the weekend because it solves the problem of something that many of us use every single day. And that is disposable cups. Now, uh, I'm delighted to say I'm introducing David Hughes to our programme. He's from a company called Happy Dolphin, and he makes his cups from a substance called biodolomer. I hope I'm saying that right. David, thank you so much for joining us on the radio this morning. Tell me about biodolomer. What is it? How does it work? Georgia, good morning. Um, Biodolomer is made from plants and minerals principally uh, calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate is a 
earth-friendly material that we can eat, that is animal-friendly, uh, marine-friendly, and without its existence, we wouldn't be here on Earth. And the whole packaging process around Biodolima is based on Earth's most natural packaging, which is, believe it or not, the simple egg. Now, the egg gives life, and it protects life, and it's 90% calcium carbonate and 10% protein, the bit we eat. And a, a genius scientist called Aki Rosen, over decades, has managed to replicate Earth's perfect packaging and develop this product principally from calcium carbonate and vegetable oils that can replace 80% of plastic, is the most sustainable material we've seen anywhere, the most certification, and has the lowest CO2 emissions. So... There's a lot of greenwashing lurking around at the moment. This does not sound like it, but tell me, how quickly do they actually break down? I'm going to tap one. I've got one now. No, it no. sounds like a plastic cup. It looks like a plastic cup, but it's not a plastic cup. No, it isn't. And there's no plastic taste. Now, the, the key thing about, as you rightly said, greenwashing is with this material is the real deal. So if we put, we tested the cups... Um, in a Auckland's composting machine with our partners here in the UAE, Green Good UAE, and the cup broke down in 24 hours. If this cup is thrown out in the environment, unlike first-generation um, cornstarch-based cups, this material will break down within two years. So if any animal eats it, it's animal safe. But you can take these cups home. We've just launched them with a global first with our friends at Ethara who are brilliant and they have the theme for the cups called racing towards a sustainable future because ethara organizes the f1 don't that's they? right so we were with them at the abu dhabi grand prix we did all the foo fighters concerts shania twain chris brown if you were at the concerts you would have used our cups and we spoke to all the uh, customers there they love the fact that this, these cups went plastic they love the design the quality the feel and also there's no plastic taste because you've got a natural calcium carbonate instead of poisonous, polluting petroleum plastic. Now, at the end of the event, these cups can be collected and put into the composting machines that Ithara provided on site. They can be taken home by consumers, hand-washed and used for a year. They can even be burnt for renewable energy with zero CO2 emissions. And that's fantastic because, as you know, in Dubai next year, we've got the big waste-to-energy plant coming in. So... 80% of all the plastic we use, including all the F&B at all the events, all the carrier bags in the supermarkets, and even the water bottle, are going to be replaced by this material. And we're bringing it to the UAE and the Abu Dhabi at the global launch. How fantastic is that? I have to say, it is pretty fantastic. Um, because, I mean, I keep on putting it in my mouth. Because um, I want to, you keep on saying the taste and everything. And you're right. It, I mean, it just tastes like a plastic, not, uh, it just tastes like a cup. Yes. I don't know. It, it's exactly yeah. what you'd expect. Um, so I'm guessing, as you mentioned there, the consumers like them. What's the catch? I'm well, a journalist. There's got to be a catch. <laughs> are they more expensive? What's the catch? They are more expensive. Yeah. But um, consumers are prepared to pay. And the beauty about these cups is they're a, rev they're a revenue stream because you can brand them. Yep. And logotize them. I can see you've got And one also, here. any yeah. event you know in Europe already, and, and increasingly so in the region, consumers are happy to pay a dirham, maybe even two dirhams, to have a cup that they know is going to be fully sustainable and isn't, isn't going to poison them in any way. And, they, they, you know... Yeah, it doesn't put... It doesn't put everyone's obsessed with microplastics now, aren't they? Yes, as well? and, and, there's, and the big thing about this material, there's no microplastics. How about 
How about this biodolomer material? What else can it be used for? Because it sounds genius. We're making fishing nets out of it, which oh, is brilliant. Great. That's a massive pollution problem for the oceans. Um, do you all... do the plastic bags in it? Because you yes. bought some plastic yes, bags. Yes, so uh, we were on the lovely Helen Farmer show 18 Love months Helen. ago, and she had our brilliant Happy Dolphin bags. Now, the problem with first-generation compostable bags is they were pretty flimsy and they weren't very strong. Yeah. These bags, because calcium carbonate is a metal, are really strong and they'll last for over a year. So we've had bags that we've been using for two years. Now, that's a compostable bag. And you, would you pay, I'm asking you as a consumer, two dirhams in a supermarket for a, a, a super strong, fully sustainable bag? Yeah, because they're making me pay one for an awful one, aren't well, they? Well, there Already, you go. Yeah. And we're, we're in discussions with the retailers and we're trying to get both the cups and the bags into the stores. And if I can just say a big part of Happy Dolphin here in Dubai and also in Europe is our vision is to empower our young people to persuade their parents and peers to make the switch from poisonous, polluting petroleum plastic to happy dolphin-style compostables because it's their future and we're not doing this primarily for money. We're doing it for our own kids. All my kids are involved in all our videos and promotion and social media and we're doing it for your kids. I have to say... It's very impressive. Uh, and, and even even to this day, you know, we'll have people coming in to talk on the radio about sustainability. But unfortunately, you know, you hand them a cup of coffee and, and you're like, the, the, you know, the lid is plastic. So right, you know, literally right down to the sort of nitty gritty of the daily grind. We need to be sorting out our sort of sustainable options. Really interesting to speak to you, sir. Thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate your time. Uh, David Hughes of Happy Dolphin. Uh, they're set to start producing their cups and various other products here in the UAE soon. Talks at, talks at a high level, you said, David. Yes, we're looking to build a granulation plant in uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, roll out the material for all products that we, you can use to replace plastic. Fantastic. Always good to hear from you. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. I wish you all the luck Thank with you your new indeed. startup. Much appreciated. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. So it was a busy weekend down at COP28, uh, but it was also a very busy weekend from a sporting perspective, uh, not least uh, with a whole bunch of sailing going on, uh, amazing sailing competition going on at Port Rashid. Uh, our very own producer, Jennifer Crichton, went down there with her boy, Arthur, and said it was thrilling. Chris McCarty, needless to say, was there on site as our sports editor, uh, and he has all of the details of that event, uh, plus all of the other weekend's headlines for us now. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Monday. And yes, uh, plenty to discuss in the world of sport. Another fascinating weekend across your different disciplines. We'll start, as we so often do, with football and well, the recriminations are being felt far and wide, both at Old Trafford and at Stamford Bridge. Manchester United is succumbing to a 3-0 home defeat to Bournemouth. That is a result that piles the pressure on Eric Ten Hag. A first ever win for the Cherries at the Theatre of Dreams for Man United. Well, it gets it goes from bad to worse. Simple as that. They've got a massive six days ahead. Bayern Munich at Old Trafford in the Champions League midweek. They need to win that, then hope that Copenhagen and Galatasaray draw in the Danish capital if they're to progress to the last 16 of the Champions League and then next weekend they go to the scene of the crime back in March it was Liverpool 7 Man United nil on that occasion I was there I was watching it through the cracks in my fingers 
Man United and Eric Ten Hag, surely this love affair, if we can call it that, is going to end in tears. A massive six days coming up. There's a lot of pressure on another manager as well. Mauricio Pochettino, Chelsea beaten for the second successive time. They were beaten 2-0 by Everton at Goodison Park yesterday. Everton, great value for it. When you look at recent form, Chelsea in their last eight, they've only won twice. They've drawn two. They've lost four. Their last clean sheet, got to go back to October the second against Fulham. It's just three clean sheets in 16. Their problems mount. No leaders in that Chelsea side. Then again, I could say the same for Man United as well. The other big story, I guess, from the weekend, Aston Villa beating Arsenal by a goal to nil. That run of successive home victories up to 15. Now, Unai Emery's men can do no wrong. That gets you bang up to date with the football. As for the cricket, England failing to claim a clean sweep over in India in their T20 series. India winning the third by five wickets. They now bounce into a four-day one-off test match this coming Thursday. So that gets you bang up to date with the football, a little bit of the cricket and one other line from the football very quickly as well Girona they are the toast of Spanish football a 4-2 victory a famous victory at the Camp Nou yesterday pressure starting to mount a little on Xavi Hernandez the Barca boss but Girona the shock troops of this La Liga season they're top of the table they're ahead for goodness sake of Real Madrid the most storied club you can make an argument in world football so that's your wrap plenty to look forward to this coming week loads of Champions League action loads of Europa League action I'll bring you the best of it over the course of the next few days. Chris McCarty, thank you very much indeed, bringing us up to date there with all our sporting news headlines. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.